Welcome to the Salted Podcast, where we are translating and transforming our view of politics, pop culture, and personal preference. In this episode, we are on part two in our conversation on contemporary critical theory, looking specifically at the idea of identity formation. Are our identities derived from our intersectional membership of oppressor and oppressed groups, or are we uniquely and individually made in the image of a creator? Let's get salty. Welcome to the Salted Podcast. My name is Yon. My name is Dan. And in this episode, we are on part two in our conversation around critical theory, contemporary critical theory. Yeah, it's a part two in a series. Yon, why are we doing a series? Well, it's just such a broad topic and it has a significant number of kind of subcategories under it. We couldn't just put it into one and talk at you for five hours. So this is episode number two or part number two. And we're dealing specifically with the concept of identity formation. And we've done a whole other podcast on this, but we're talking specifically how contemporary critical theory informs our identity um, as individuals and as collective groups. And you may have recognized this topic without knowing that you've recognized this topic if you've heard the phrase identity politics. Yeah. You may, if you've ever watched a political campaign, maybe a speech, everyone's got a sign that says something like Latinos for Biden or women for, not Trump, women for Biden. Right? Whites for Trump. Yeah, whites for Trump. Yeah, I haven't seen that I one. But, yeah. <laughs> but it's always this, seems like there's a subcategory for this certain political um, person or political party. Um, you may have seen this on social media. There's things that, that, that surface on social media. Um, I mean, like the world-famous Rosie O'Donnell says stuff like, hey, Biden and Beto, and it's like, no more old white men, right? That tweet right. surfaces. Um, or recently, I mean, Mayor Lightfoot of, of Chicago, she's right in the middle of her first inaugural term, and reporters want to interview and see how it's going. She says, I'm only going to be interviewed by black or brown reporters, and everyone's like, Oh, okay. Oh, man. And if you're like us, you're, you'd think you're sitting there thinking, it just seems awfully weird that um, we can, it seems to be normalized where it's like, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to discriminate on what reporters allowed to talk to a mayor based on the color of their skin or who is going to get elected based on their, uh, their gender and their race. Um, but this is kind of how it surfaces and in, in some of the ways in which our critical contemporary critical theory kind of informs um, the way our identity is formed and what's kind of appropriate in terms of how we interact with each other. Yeah, and I think we should warn our listeners too, or at least um, at least give them a heads up. This isn't a politics episode. No, this is this is actually um, perhaps what is under the surface of what emerges, what what kind of shows itself in politics. Right, politics is just a great representation of how this stuff yes, surfaces, like exactly. you just said. So. Yes, I mean, the question is, well, how does contemporary critical theory inform the way that we we form our identity? And how do we kind of collectively look at identity formation through the contemporary critical lens? And then how is it influencing our culture? And how does that stand in comparison to a biblical worldview and a gospel-centered worldview of how identity is formed? Exactly. And we... we recorded our previous episode part one would be a great starting point wouldn't you say you know i mean if you it you you don't have to start there in order to listen to this episode but if you did i think you would have a better understanding what the terms are and why we believe this is so critical (laughs) oh so uh urgent and vital for everybody to yeah, I don't know if it's best practice in the, in the podcast where to tell someone to stop listening yeah. and go listen to another one, but it might be a good place to start in our in our part one. It gives a general overview of of contemporary critical theory and kind of its origins and, and where it kind of stands today. So. You know, and start us with um, helping us understand definitions, right? We talked about critical theory, contemporary critical theory, the last episode. Uh, I'll mention this again, but we talked about a worldview, um, but... But where did this idea of critical theory, uh, in terms of its impact on identity formation and categorizing people in skin color or race, gender, sex, um, you know, 
where did that start? Define, de- help us start with an orienting, uh, orienting our definitions. Right. So if you remember um, the conversation around the kind of the origins of, of and the foundations of, of contemporary critical theory, which has like a myriad of different um, practices and disciplines in it, but really the foundation kind of emerged out of Marxism, right? And the at the core of the Marxist worldview is the idea that there's a struggle between the what they would call the ruling class or the bourgeoisie and the workers who would be the, the proletariat and um, and how there's this constant struggle between these two entities and there's generally always an oppressor oppressing on someone who is oppressed. And so that power dynamic is always happening in every situation and this is kind of the foundation for the contemporary critical theory uh, concept of identity formation. And so a contemporary critical theory uh, would divide society into these two different groups, oppressed groups and oppressor groups. And then from there, you have those two larger groups, and then you start breaking them down even further. And you would have many critical theorists who insist that our identity as individuals is, is less important as the individual and is more linked or bound to a group that gotcha. we would find ourselves in, either in the oppressor or the oppressed Group. And when we talk about Marxism, it's important for us to make a distinction. I think that um, Karl Marx was specifically treating or theorizing in economics, right? Correct, yes. And so when you get into critical theory, especially the contemporary side, this is essentially the application of some of those principles or theories to social structure. Correct, which okay. is why the buzzword of cultural Marxism is usually thrown around. Gotcha. Um, mo- mostly with limited depth. Yeah. Kind of as a, I don't want to say a slander. It's an insult. Yeah, yeah it's an insult, and gotcha. so that's why we're kind of shading away from it. But yeah, as you said, is uh, it's the application of that economic theory into like the cultural so- social st- uh, structures. Gotcha. And so we have these critical theorists, right, who, who, who insist that our identity as individuals is kind of is formed in these, uh, these groups of oppressed or oppressor. Um, and so really everything that we experience or our reality or even our evaluation of kind of what is true, um, our moral status, our moral obligations, all of these different elements are largely determined by our membership in either a dominant group, so the oppressor group, or a subordinate, an oppressed group. Oh my goodness! And okay. so we, at the core of it, what we want to say is very little of our identity in the contemporary critical theorist mind is shaped around your individualism, and it's mm. more connected to the yeah. group yeah. in which you are a part of. And, and, and you just said it's largely deter- determined. Our identity is largely determined by our membership in one of those two groups. Right. Exactly. Gotcha. So you are. Um, so if you were to think of some of these, um, one of the terms that they use is this idea of hegemonic power. And we're actually going to do a whole other episode that kind of goes into some of this uh, a hegemony conversation. But mm-hmm. it's really, it's what this, this, this tenant of, the, of a contemporary critical theory is, is that it's the, the hegemonic power is the ability of a particular group to impose norms, values, and expectations on the rest of society. Okay. So if you're in the ruling yeah. group of people, you can impose what's normal behavior, what the yeah. values are, and what the expe- expectations are totally for everybody makes else. Totally makes sense. Totally yep. makes sense. So, so that's the power group. Right. And then so that kind of emerges in things like when you hear things like racism, classism, ableism, or capitalism, heteronormativity. Uh, cisgender privilege. These mm-hmm. are all terms that are saying, well, you know, the people who create the oppressor, the, the this ruling class um, imposes or oppresses each of these people based on their race, maybe based on their class, based, based gotcha. on their ability, so that yep. they may, maybe, you know, the ability, the wow. idea of being disabled or able or something like that. So so there's this oppression in all of these different Now, Yon, I'm going to throw you a, a little bit of a curveball here, but would you say this is where the uh, participation trophy idea comes from is that is that what what we're doing is we're saying hey you weren't in the oppressor group you weren't in the winning um power group instead or or you weren't in the oppressed group you weren't in the losing uh, bottom end of this power structure am i am i reaching too far well i think it's a it is a it's a challenge. That mentality is a challenge 
to the prevailing thought that you get a trophy if you're the best at something. Right. You're and, able. Right. And compared so, to someone exactly. else. And so the idea that setting the norms and the values of society saying, hey, the winners, the top three get a medal, nobody else gets a medal. Well, we're going to challenge that assumption because the people who made those rules are the people yes. who are more likely to finish in the to top win. three. Yeah? Yes. And if you're not able to do that, we want to flip that because right. we want to change the norms. So Little League trophies were invented by the first place team. Right, exactly. And so each year there's a system in place to help that team keep winning, keep getting trophies, and the other kids are in the... Now, again... Uh, I, we, our listeners should not quote us on right, this. Right? Yeah, it's a, this it's is a simple metaphor to yeah, help kind yeah. of describe the. It's not a thing. Complex. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but but it does kind of it it bears out in real circumstances in in the way that we interact with one another. Where you would say, right? This so very practically and realistically speaking, there is the idea that a a white male is at the pinnacle of mm. the oppressor category. Okay. Right, and so if you are a white male. Um, the idea that the way this identity construct is created in, in critical theory is the fact that if you're a white male, um, it's not that you have directly oppressed a woman mm -hmm. or a woman of color, um, but it's the fact that you are part of this powerful ruling group that has imposed its, uh, itself, its viewpoint, its values on the rest of society regarding what is normal, valuable. And so you may not individually have done it, but you are a part of this oppressor group, and so now your identity is inextricably linked right. to that oppressor group. Okay, and so you said inextricably, inex inextricably, yeah, I right? think that's a word. Yeah, we always end up with these words that we can't. Why are we using words that <laughs> we don't to know? Trying people. I know, but we always get <laughs> snagged on them. But that, I was actually going to say that the word inextricably is important because you can't peel away. If you have that skin color, that race, whatever, class, gender, whatever, if you're in that quote-unquote group based on those categories, you can't pull yourself. We'll talk about this a little bit later in the episode, right. but you can't pull yourself out of that. That's right. You are, uh, like we said, guilty by association. That's right. It doesn't really matter what you do okay. as an individual because this prevailing oppressor group exists it, and you're a part of it. That's it, kind of Is that where we get terms it. like white? privilege and whiteness and white adjacent is that the idea yeah exactly and so you're gonna you might interact with someone who who says white privilege what are you talking about i grew up in a you know i grew up in a trailer park and i was oh, right I, I was living in poverty or like and they would say well what's where's my privilege and they would say well it doesn't your individual experience doesn't necessarily matter um it really has to do with well you're still part of this oppressor group mm. and whiteness is the this mentality of that's uh, the prevailing power structure correct right yes. so i'm a part of the prevailing one even though That's it didn't right. hash out in my personal lived experience correct yeah yep. and so even terms like white adjacent you might hear that because there's a big conversation around how asians america and americans and, and and indian americans are who are immigrants are very successful even more successful than um caucasians and you'd say that the the argument is always well these people are succeeding well the, the response is then, well, they are white adjacent. They're just embodying all of and embracing the values and the, the, uh, the dominant narrative of the oppressor group, and that's why they're successful. Okay, so so when you hear publicly, you hear people pushing back on, on contemporary critical theory, and they say, it's all this basically craps because look how successful Asian Americans are. Salary, career uh, um, outcomes in their lives, their children's right. uh, achievement and aspirations— and, and when someone says that you can explain that with cr contemporary critical theory. Yeah. In fact, they are just embodying all of the, what would be the whiteness or the, gotcha. the, the privileges that, that the, the ruling oppressor the class. Yeah. They are just embracing that and not pushing uh, back on gotcha. it. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. So there's this kind of the idea when it gets down to really identity, you have this, these kind of oppressor and oppressee. Um, and then you have underneath that all these different levels. Um, so you have, like we said, right, race. There's different levels of, of, of oppressor and oppressee in the, on, on the racial scale um, based on your social class, based on your abilities, based on, um, you know, your sexual identity. Um, and so when you get further and further down, this is where you're going to hear the term intersectionality show up mm -hmm. because it's not just an oppressor or an oppressee category. There's subcategories in there where you could be, there's, you could be, on multiple different levels where you could be a white female. So you are uh, an oppressed group in that you are a female 
and that there's a patriarchy that's oppressing you, but because you're white, you're at the, the top of the racial category. So there's these some different levels of intersectionality that interact in terms of measuring your level of oppression compared to other people. And I understand this is where the um, grievance studies really um, is rooted in, right? Intersectionality, categorizing by people by the levels or the ways in which they've been oppressed. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that, that that's pretty accurate and that there's, there, like we said, there's just so many different levels uh, on the racial scale, the ability scale, the, the sexual identity mm. scale, the, the social scale. And so um, if you meet, like we said, if you meet someone, you hear the term intersectionality, it's how you, your different levels, your different kind of parts of who you are in all these different groups intersect with each other mm-hmm. to measure your, essentially your oppression level. Yeah. So... And ultimately, this is important in terms of our conversation because this is the kind of the foundational way in which identity is formed. Like we said, it's it's a function in collect in contemporary critical theory. Your identity is less about you as an individual and more of a function of you being part of a collective group. And all of these different groups um, are all you, you, different parts of you and all of these different groups potentially. Yeah, and there's some things that about this theory that we could probably categorize as as a strength, right? Something that uh, is beneficial to really anyone and all of us. Um, And one of the things that comes to mind, Yon, is that um, the greatest strength of critical theory, and this has kind of been described by Neil Shenvey, who's who's a a leading expert in a lot of uh, what we're learning really has come from his work, uh, but he says that the greatest strength of critical theory is its recognition that oppression is evil. It's pointing it out. It's elevating it. It's surfacing. It's literally holding it up in our culture. And and uh, the Bible is emphatic in its condemnation of oppression. Yeah. It. It. Again, this is the the ability to diagnose some of the things that are to to perceive some of the 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 impacts of sin in our life. Oppression being a big one. Um, Right, it's it's a way in which we say, okay, yeah, well, oppression biblically and from a gospel-centered worldview, oppression is uh, morally repugnant. It's sinful, and so looking the, the the contemporary critical theorist looks around and says, well, where is the oppression? And we need to remedy this oppre- oppression and make sure that it doesn't happen anymore. And so that's something that is when you when you listen to it, you're like, who doesn't agree with that? I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, right? exactly. And um, Jesus himself is described as oppressed and afflicted, right? God identifies with suffering people so much so that he really, that Jesus took on human flesh uh, to experience uh, uniquely as an incarnated rescuer the, the oppression and the affliction of being a human being. And then he commands his followers to seek justice and pursue justice really on their behalf. And we have to keep in mind that the, the Bible and the dictionary define oppression very differently than critical theorists. Right. Yeah, the, 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 the dictionary definition is, is significantly more um, robust in some of the, the way it yeah. describes what oppression actually is. Yeah, either way you look at it, though, you know, those in authority are using their power to crush and abuse the powerless. Christians should obviously right it's so sad that i have to say the word obviously but obviously christians should absolutely be defending the rights of the power if if you are a if you belong to jesus you're you are a part a citizen citizen of god's kingdom by your faith in jesus right you now have been adopted and you belong into his kingdom it's it's you're you're not that kingdom you're not this kingdom you're a third kingdom you're 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 a unique kingdom that's that's arrived on earth ushered in by jesus and the rights and the defense of the powerless are paramount. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books I'm reading is Tom Holland's book called Dominion. And he just literally is describing how Jesus flipped the entire world, how the Judeo-Christian worldview, and primarily the power structures where mm. the last shall be first, the first shall be last, and how there's a ruling class and, and they don't just get to... in. They just don't get to oppress everybody and, and and just live with impunity because they have the power. But he flips it, and he says actively pursue you know the the the, the serving of people and the reduction of oppression. So that's a that's something that we can all, like you said, obviously that's something we can embrace that that yeah contemporary critical theorists would advocate for. Yeah. In addition to that, critical theories focus on the power of evil in groups rather than on individuals. And this is something that I would instinctively balk at, right, because of my theology, when we'll get to this a little bit later. But 
but really there is some truth uh, when you when you consider the insight into how laws and institutions can literally promote sinful evil um, you know I mean you don't have to go very far back to remember the laws related to slavery in the United States or certainly the way that the, the government um, facilitated the Holocaust or apartheid in South Africa if you're old enough to remember that um, it, it, these horrors shouldn't be exclusively understood as individual acts of immorality they right. were systematized yeah they were they were industrialized yeah look at the exactly. holocaust and the yes. level of detail that they and and the industrial level of of genocide there is pretty it's pretty shocking and totally. that goes ever and that is cross cultures right yeah. you can't look at any culture and say i mean there are i mean even even modern day china i mean they have a whole system of social credit and they're oppressing uyghurs the muslims like all this like it's all very you can look around and you, you'd have to be blind to say, well, look, it, it's not all a, a, a component of individual sinfulness. It right. is a collective effort to systematize oppression. And that's not, you know, that's not out of the realm of reality. No, it's not. And, and technically, this immorality, right, this sinful immorality of exploitation and oppression was, was codified. It was written right. into law, into these cultures. And I have to make room in my mind, in my heart, that... These were not perpetuated on people or perpetrated on people as individuals. Individuals were participating in in what was a group right. implementation or a societal implementation. And, and human beings were individually morally responsible for their own actions, but there were laws, institutions, and systems that dramatically um, amplified or, or reached deeply and far uh far into uh or, or into expressing and and perpetrated human wickedness right and so the idea that there's there seems to be a knee a knee-jerk reaction that says no 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 that doesn't exist right it doesn't exist systemic fill in the blank doesn't exist well you know that's a that's not a very accurate way of looking at history and even our more recent 80 years ago recent american history of I mean, we had people in internment camps 80 uh, years ago oh, man. You know, in the Japanese-Americans. So the idea just this knee-jerk reaction to say, nope, I, I, I reject anything that's systemic is probably not a very wise yeah, or thoughtful I, way to approach it. Right, and I can't help but think off the top of my head, Yon, of all the ways in which uh, Christian institutions protected some of those um, sure systems and institutions advance them justified them yeah. um, I'm reading a, a book uh, by Esau Macaulay I think that's his last name I know his first name is Esau because you don't come across that very often but he wrote this book called reading while black and uh, and and he and he does a really really terrific job of outlining the ways in which the Bible was taught by power groups to those who aren't in power in ways that enable those sinful powers right. to to yep. remain in place. Yep. And that's and that is I mean again the the kind of the third area of why it's compelling is because it doesn't there is this perception that I mean you can have a, a level of power a group of people who are instituting values and norms and saying hey this is what's acceptable not acceptable and, you know, that is, I mean, the fact that that exists is a very real realization of, of just living in our world. So we said, well, what's another strength of contemporary critical theory? Well, they've rightly identified that there are some norms and values that are being imposed on people. And that sometimes when you push back on that, there is a ref there's a reaction because these people want to ensure that these norms and values mm. and the way we view things remain constant because yes. that's where they kind of have their power and that's where they have their ability to kind of to profit and to 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 maintain the status quo. Oh. So, I mean, you can see a perfect example and this is something that I mean, you have daughters and I have a daughter and you think of when you think of how maybe Hollywood or Madison Avenue Avenue defines beauty and sexuality. Oh boy. Right, you look at any magazine, you look yeah. at any movie and you think how hard does a Christian parent have to work to teach our will, our Ooh. our kids that even our you know our sons that women are not sex sex, ob, sex objects right? And you know that, why you couldn't get that out, Yon? Because I've this, been so the, programmed. These no these <laughs> these types of you're so pure. Oh, that's the, right. These evil <laughs> concepts they, they don't even. That's come not because I've been programmed that I physically can't even get that out. No. It's not in you. It can't okay, come out. Okay, of right, you. Yeah. yeah. 
But the idea, I mean, think about how hard you got to work to, to think women are not sex objects. <laughs> See? You, you stop saying, no, let, okay. let me say this yeah, phrase. Let's say that one. Let me, this. this <laughs> you know, this is actually, this is, this actually resonates with me so, so deeply because the scripture teaches men in God's family to see older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, right? So that's how you, that's how you relate to women, right? And so I have at a very young age internalized that deep enough that the thought, hearing music and seeing images, music, images, music, images, where the female, the woman is, and this is, is simply an object, right? To be owned, to be used, to be sexualized, whatever, is so uh, off-putting. But when I had kids, when I had, when I, when I started to think about the, the human being who is my daughters, it became increasingly alarming to me, um, uh, knowing, of course, and trying to elevate that beauty is internal, that someone is not attractive because they're useful to your needs or wants, that they're beautiful um, because of, of their simply, their God-given beauty. So it's not just external, but what you were saying was this is an example yeah. of how a group, uh, the effect of norms and values can be perpetuated on a culture. That's right. They uh, have the power to, they produce the movies, they direct the movies, they create the magazines, they create the commercials and the TV shows. And suddenly it's like, okay, well that's the, and why? Because sex sells, right? And so yeah. it's a way for them to profit and maintain their power and Oof. influence. And so we realize, I mean, instinctively again, yeah, I mean, the things that contemporary critical theory are identifying is that, yeah, these things exist and the question then becomes, well, what's the solution? And this is, I think, maybe where some of the problems of contemporary critical theory show up where um, some of the conclusions um, and some of the ways in which the identification of these problems create and the solution creates some problems for contemporary critical theorists. Yeah, because we're, I mean, let me remind our listeners, this isn't a episode on the virtues and value of right. contemporary critical theory. That's right. We're going to dive into here to the problems. Right. The problems that it generates for a Christian worldview, starting with, we did this last, the last episode, starting with, it's a replacement counterfeit worldview. But um, there's also some other problems. Yeah, so even... If you're a listener and you don't even have a gospel worldview or a biblical worldview, there's just some problems on its face. I mean, mm. one of this is this idea of moral asymmetry, right? It's just this idea that because it has a collectivist outlook where your identity is, is wrapped up in your group, um, the members of the oppressor groups are not seen as morally neutral, right? Even though their moral behavior is kind of uh, unimpeachable. So essentially, mm. in layman's terms, you're guilty of the sins of the people in your oppressor group, mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not you yourself have actually um, participated in those or committed those. So if I'm not actively working to tear down those inherent structures and institutions, right? Let's say, and I've heard this, I've heard it said this way, if, if you're silent, right, then you are complicit, right, in, yeah. in the violence of that structure or that institution. Right. It's a, it's kind of a, exactly. It's kind of a, the idea that you have a, an, the original sin of racism if you're white. Mm. And then, so even if you're, I realize that even the idea of saying that even if you're not racist, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's problematic for, for contemporary critical theorists. But even the fact that you haven't done anything bigoted or racist, you're still guilty of racism just yeah, because. I got it. Yep. And that's the, that's the moral asymmetry. Yeah. Moral asymmetry. Asymmetry. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And then the other one is this is, um, this is, not complicated, but I will explain it as easily as possible. But the idea of this intersectionality logical fallacy, right? That's a long way of saying, right? When you take intersectionality to its logical conclusions, intersectionality will eventually arrive at the individual experience of each person. Why is that a yeah. Why is that a problem? Yeah, so, well, it's a problem for contemporary critical theorists because they they will. You have your two major groups of oppressed and oppressed. Yeah. oppressor and then as you go down right you have your intersectionality of your subgroups of what group you're a part of you are male female white person of color transgender um, cisgender, transgender so you have all these different intersectional categories 
Um, and so you're kind of on this oppressive scale, right, mm-hmm. from top to bottom. The problem is, is that if you carry intersectionality out to its logical conclusions and you keep going down and down and down and down, mm-hmm. you, nobody on planet Earth has the same lived experience, mm-hmm. which they put a lot of hope, faith, and trust in. Yeah. No one has the same lived experience. So ultimately, intersectionality gets down to the individual because my lived experience is different than your lived experience, regardless of how many boxes we check uh, on all of these different oppressed or oppressor groups, right? Mm. And so um, it's a when carried to its logical conclusion, it just doesn't work out. So the way contemporary critical theorists do it, they essentially go down halfway on these uh, all different groups, and they don't carry it out all the way. Right, because if they carried it out, they would get to their opposing theories' conclusion, right? right. Which, which is, is all of this is measured and hashed out on an individual basis, not on a group identity basis. That's right, exactly. Okay. Gotcha. So. Interesting. Yep. So those are some of the kind of the, there's two kind of problems just on its face, not even including a a biblical lens on things. But Mm. I mean, there are some real problems for a Christian who's thinking of maybe embracing these and how they, um, like you said, it's a, it's a replacement and a counterfeit worldview. Yeah. Um, That's the major problem. Right. That's the major problem. That's where you start, right? This entire critical theory that is current and contemporary here now replaces the worldview that we that has been revealed to us by the judeo-christian bible which we believe to be god has revealed himself the creator the the designer of the universe his image has been revealed to us and that's the starting point right and critical theory functions as a worldview because it answers the major questions who are we that's identity we're doing that today what's our fundamental problem Uh, how do we solve that problem the solution or redemption what's our primary moral duty what is our mission what are we supposed to be doing and and how should we live so christianity provides us with an overarching meta-narrative that runs from creation to redemption and uh, you know it starts with uh, creatures being made in god's image they've sinned against god they need to be rescued through the work of jesus that he replaces or substitutes what they deserve uh, for his own life and then death and our mission uh, or calling uh, or purpose, our design to love both God and our neighbor. So that's the worldview that's replaced by contemporary critical theory. And these meta narratives are literally competing for the dominance in all areas of our life. And uh, as we talk through the question of identity, uh, it's vital to understand that from the Christian worldview, right? When we're thinking about translating culture, Yon, which you just did, Mm -hmm. and then we start talking about now, how do we transform our view of it? What does it look like through the lens of the Christian worldview? We have to stop and look very closely at how contemporary critical theory replaces or counterfeits the source of the human identity. Right at the very beginning, right? So first we talk about the meta narrative, right? We've got this big story that all the major questions are answered by the Christian worldview or the contemporary critical theorist. And underneath and within that, we have this massively important segment called identity. Mm. Is our identity primarily defined in terms of our vertical relationship to God or is it defined primarily by our horizontal power dynamics? between groups of people. And again, uh, Neil Shenvey has a lot to say on this, and I, uh, it's just so important to, to reference his work. But according to the critical theorist, it's not possible for you to say, okay, I understand that there are racist white people out there. I'm not denying that, but that's not me. This is, this is a quote from him. I should be treated as an individual, not just as a member of a group. And critical theorists deny that you can understand your identity apart from your membership in that dominant group, which you, you described to us. You explained right. it to us. Now, what happens if you say that? Well, if, if you say that, then that's evidence, proof, uh, according to white, the book White Fragility. Um, um, and, and, and the author there, she says that, that that's evidence. It proves your white privilege and your racism by saying Hey, I acknowledge that exists. I acknowledge that uh, has happening, but I'm not personally committing uh, that foul, right? Not doing that. So the so we so the question is, where do we go to find 
what we believe to be the real design for the way that God created us in our identity. What's the biblical worldview solution? And it starts by focusing on the origin of the human race. Critical theory also functions um, uh, as a worldview, right? Competing against the Christian worldview, it tells an alternate comprehensive story about reality. And the story of critical theory begins not with creation, you know, it starts with humans are in groups of oppression or oppressor. Right. And Oppressed, that, changes our, that, what, what, that changes the initial question. Where do we come from or, or, or who are we? Sure. Right. So they start with, this theory starts with oppression. Uh, it starts with you're on earth. And y- y- now if you omit creation in the, as an element of the story, it's important because it changes our answer to the question, who are we? Um, so in critical theory, there's no transcendent creator. There's no creator who's, who's made human beings with purpose and a design for our lives or an identity and has, and, and with intention, with, sure. with an intention behind the design, or, or we don't primarily exist in relation to God, but we primarily exist in relation to other people hmm. and to other groups. Our identity is not defined primarily in terms of who we are as God's creatures. Instead, we define ourselves. This is what the critical theory says. You define yourself, and it's all defined by your race, class, sexuality, gender, identity, whatever other uh, categories there are. So, so again, CCT assumes adversarial relationships. The assumption is between individuals that is profoundly antithetical to Christianity. Um, it, it depends crucially on differentiating identity groups into oppressor and oppressed, which means that at the very beginning, relationships in their identity are adversarial. They're, they're in conflict with each other right at the beginning. And the, the biblical worldview kind of presents a poison pill to that, to that oh, worldview. It does. If, if there's an idea of yes. a shared beginning. Right, right. If all humans are sharing a fundamental identity mark, that fact, if, if, if every human being shares something fundamentally, in their identity, that would severely undermine the dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed, right? And and really, it it kind of weakens or kind of brings down this house of cards, uh, the foundation of critical theory that that their that identities are fundamentally um, in in adversarial conflict with one another. So, Christianity offers really several fundamental identity markers which actually do undermine this theory of adversarial relationships yeah what are those i mean is there three of them you have there's three and um i mean i could kind of generalize them right the first one is in creation and then then in sin and then for christians in redemption um starting with the creation when all human beings this is not so this is the judeo-christian worldview uh which uh according to the scriptures all human beings, it doesn't matter whether they're male, female, or, you know, uh, what race, black, white, Asian, young, old, all of the human race is made in the image of God. And because of that, as a result of that design, they possess equal value. They possess equal dignity and are to be treasured and valued equally. So this this is a shared mark of identity that undermines the idea that in that in, in intrinsically that uh, these two groups are at odds with each other. Right, and I think ironically, I mean, not only does it present a totally different foundation upon which contemporary critical theory is built on, but the, even the the solution to the problem, you know, the this presents a different solution. Where in, in contemporary critical theory, there's very little empathy and very little mm. grace for the oppressor. Right. Yes. In this one, in the, the biblical worldly world, even the oppressor, even if they're committing the sin of oppression, they themselves yes. are made in the image of God, no, and they are so of true. equal value and dignity. Totally so, true. So yep. that's, a, that's another layer of complete and utter uniqueness of the the Christian worldview. Right, sure. and and you see what it does here. Uh, hopefully, it, it it this idea kind of forms this basis for solidarity between the powerful and the powerless. 
which again threatens the divisions that are fundamental to critical theory. There's a shared value and a shared design, no matter who you are, whatever tongue, nation, tribe, um, race, you know, however you want to divide it up, there's there's a shared, there's a commonality there too. Sure. So the only group is the essentially the human, human race, race right? exactly so one group that you're a part of and perfectly you can identify. perfectly said secondly the christian doctrine of sin it teaches i mean basically that human beings are united in their rebellion against god they live for their own glory every human being has in its in its heart the desire to magnify itself live for its own fame and worth and value and um and really fundamentally it's it's a rebellion against god's glory and his authority and his um supreme value and worth and so we share a solidarity in sin just as much as we share a solidarity in the image of god or being created in his image look at us we just got some intersectionality <gasps> except everyone is intersected with Ooh. everyone is being and if everyone is no one is special that's right yes that's logic you and it's seventh grade logic we worked it out oh <laughs> so to the I mean you could summarize it this way to the extent that our identity is rooted in our common rebellion and our common need for mercy again that undermines the sharp line that a critical theory draws between victims and victimizers uh, in other words we're all uh, victimizers as it relates to rebelling out from under the authority of God who's created us and designed us there's a third one the last one I mentioned was the um Christians and, and redemption. You find it in the New Testament, which describes pretty explicitly uh, the fact that for Christians, the divisions between male, female, Jew, and Greek, slave, and free are all broken down. They come collapsing down. And now keep in mind, and this is, I think this is important for us if we've grown up in the church to recognize that this is not, these differences aren't erased, right? right? It's not a colorblind theology. It's instead, it says, that they are demoted in their importance. We are no longer divided by, instead we are unified as. Right. We're not divided by Jew and Greek, or, or I should say race, culture, class, gender. Instead, we are unified um, specifically by our redemption, by being brought into God's family, and those things that separated us are no longer important enough to continue to separate. No, or in other words, our new identity is overcomes our um, our distinctions. Sure. Yep. So now we can celebrate those distinctions as diversity. We can enjoy them. We can see them as a means by which God has helped us worship Him in all of His beautiful creation and in, in humanity. Um, and those things are now celebrated rather than segregating us or separating us. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, you have critical theory insists on solidarity and oppression. But the Christian faith insists on solidarity, solidarity, and, and redemption. Yeah, and sometimes it seems hard. It might be hard for a, a person who's outside the Christian faith to say, "Well, I okay, I get it in theory, but in practice, it, it doesn't necessarily show up all that well." And as we're kind of working our faith out, which is something that's, I mean, it's something that's important to recognize, but also not something to, that totally dismantles the biblical worldview. So, yeah, yeah, Neil, I love what. Neil Shenvey uh, writes, he writes, Christians must insist that we fundamentally and irreducibly relate to one another, not as oppressed and oppressor, but as brothers and sisters who have been, who have been, that's, that's a past tense, have been reconciled to one another in Jesus. Hmm. That's powerful. I mean, that means that we have more in common than we have that separates us. Now, if you're a real critical theorist, you would say, well, this is exactly what you would expect to hear from a white church leader sure yep. right um well even the idea that religion exists is yeah. in itself a function of oppression that's in true the, in the marxist and contemporary critical theorist worldview and, that's true um, that's a good point and we'll get to unpacking that probably in our original sin right. episode that's perfectly said yeah so it's i mean as you said the it we have to keep reinforcing this, but the, the, the contemporary critical theorist foundations in the worldview, it's not just that it's it's a little bit wrong and we can fit it into the Christian worldview. It's foundationally different and fundamentally different in the way in which um, specifically it talks about where our identity comes. Exactly. And, and it's, it's at odds with the it's Christian worldview. It's incompatible. Yeah. 
It's incompatible. And so the beautiful thing is we get the the pleasure of working that out and being a, a I mean pointing to a a life and God's kingdom that that does all the things that contemporary critical theory wants to do when yeah. it comes to identity and oppression and oppressors and pushing back on that and helping to to break down these these walls of of adversarialism um and so that's like the again that's the gut punch when we even talk about this it's well you're wrong contemporary critical theory yeah okay, well, what am i doing to actually make this this yeah, identity that's, in, my, in my own life that's so vital you and i think that we kind of were trying to capture a little bit of this in our last episode but uh, what what we're suggesting is that critical contemporary critical theory ccr actually ccr contemporary critical t credence clearwater revival yeah. cct what do they have to say about this it's a good question episode 10 it will be our next lead-in song yeah yeah so um, we tried to capture this a, a little bit with this idea, the last episode, which is this. CCT offers something. It offers something that people need and want. Relief, compassion, help, freedom. Um, it provides aid and assistance to those who are suffering. And what I'm, what I'm hoping, and this is obviously I've given my whole life to this, is that the Christian worldview does that and even more mm -hmm. uh, with the way in which it basically, according to the scriptures, it, it basically it describes from cover to cover all human beings are made in God's image. No exceptions. All human beings are naturally dead in their own rebellion against God. And the Bible calls that sin, right? Missing the mark or... Um, all different kinds of uh, living for your own glory and, and, and self-centered pride and so on. Um, or idolatry, you know, elevating something God created to the ultimate, you know. Um, and, then, and then also, according to the scripture, all human beings needing salvation, and it's found in a gift that God's provided. So that which we need, God tells us, oh, you need this. And then he says, and by the way, I've provided exactly what you need. Right. Uh, yeah. to, to get out of this crisis problem of being dead in sin. So these right. doctrines are uh, uh, basically are doctrines of human solidarity that bring us together. It erases those two groups of oppressed and oppressor, and radically it, it's, it's radically subversive to the things that plague our culture, sexism and racism and classism, but also to critical theory. Right. And I think one of the things that changes when we look at where the identity formation comes from in this in in contemporary critical theory worldview um i think it what it does for me is it how it really compels me to live graciously to the people who would embrace this and not view them as as enemies of our country or anything like that because i mean as someone who has not been even if you know con critical race theory is or contemporary critical theory aside i mean the when it, the social ladder the social scale scale like i haven't i mean I hit the lottery, right? When it comes to globally where I fit and yeah. the ability, the idea that um, I have friends, I have an, I have a family who love me. I have an identity in Christ. I have a group of believers that affirm my identity in a worldview. I, in a worldview, and and so for for people who don't have that, which where you're isolated, you you don't necessarily have meaning to your life. You yes. are being subject to oppression. Yes, exactly. The idea that you can you can have you can be a part of a group of people. Um, and have solidarity mm -hmm. in the idea that I fit into this group just because of who I am. I don't have to do anything like that feels appealing because it's, it's, it's meeting a need. People are designed to be in community. People were designed to have purpose and meaning. And so this worldview shows up and if they haven't experienced the Christian worldview and the, the, the biblical, the gospel community that we have, then, I mean, it's just a real to, solution. Yeah, it's a real solution. And, and it just, and it makes you feel good and say, okay, well, and this is what I keep reminding myself. This is a counterfeit worldview. They are trying to solve the problems yeah. that they are seeing in life exactly. that they that they don't look at through the biblical lens. That's right. And so when you think of it, it's like that way. It's like I can give the, give these people a lot more grace and compassion thinking they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to solve some of the problems and they've experienced it. Um, and so I don't, again, if I believe in this idea of biblical identity, they are made in the image of God. They're just as much in need of grace and mm. and deserve grace that I was right yeah so that changes the way kind of I interact with people uh, 
perfectly, perfectly said. And I think that captures the spirit in which we're approaching this topic, which is it's totally understandable. It's counterfeit. It's a replacement, but it makes total sense what the objective is. Uh, and then, and then, of course, you know, in the back of our mind, you know, and we've got the the we understand, maybe even cynically, that some have a more sure. malicious intent. Yeah. Um, but you know, they believe it because they see it clearly as a solution, yep. just like you said. Now, maybe someday in the future, we do an episode on how does someone embrace fundamental evangelical uh, theology uh, worldview and also add on or kind of massage into it critical theory but that's that's uh that's something that that's for the future that's for the future if there's a future if there's a future yeah but the good news is i don't think we mentioned this at the beginning but we do have a personal preference section of course too. we do and um maybe you thought hey it's nice out it's blockbuster season not the store, but it's blockbuster movie time. And things have kind of changed in our culture where movie theaters were closed. Now they're kind of opening back up. And so the question then becomes, if you were to go watch some of your favorite blockbuster movies coming up this summer, would you prefer to watch them in the comfort of your own home or would you like to go to a movie theater. Yeah, that's a good question, and it's described perfectly, Yon, because if it was a blockbuster and it was a new release and I really wanted to see it, I think I would prefer, um, yeah, I think I would prefer theater, and especially when I think about those recliner chairs and a big icy cold Coke Zero to help me enjoy the experience... I think I'm okay with, uh, I think I prefer watching that in a theater. You? Yeah, I actually think if I'm going to go to the movie theater, um, I'm going to spend like the full 20 bucks and go to like RPX or something ah, like that. Yeah, just because yeah. I want that full-blown experience. Right. And I honestly, those recliners, I think they're great, but this is me nitpicking, but if you're like three quarters or almost to the way back, you can't recline it all the way or else you have to prop your head up because if you lean your yeah, head back, true. you can't actually see the screen. That's so true. I find it a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe I'll be like a grandpa and bring my own pillow or something like that. <laughs> you're almost there. By the way, can you block out of your mind that there are absolutely countless individuals who've laid on that recliner chair just before you got there? Yeah, and I have like a, I have a shaved head, bald head too, oh. so I don't like all my skin is just rubbing up on someone's oily, greasy hair. Oh, yeah. Well, I just you just ruined it for me now. I'll watch so. it at home. My preference is to watch it at home. <laughs> yeah. I'll lay in my own grease. <laughs> yeah, especially if you have a giant soda, you got to be able to pause it. Exactly. Mid movie, right? Exactly. So, so I guess which one do you prefer? Do you want to go watch it at home or or stay at home, curl up on the couch and watch, or do you want to make a trip to the movie theater? Um, if anything. Go save the movie theaters. I mean, we'll find out soon what people prefer, won't we? Yeah. I mean, now that they're open again? Yeah. When I'm in college, I used to buy a movie ticket and we'd watch three movies. We'd just go from theater to theater to theater. Oh, we'd spend yo. six hours in the movie theater. And I, I realized You're that that's stealing. immoral, maybe. <laughs> but no one else was in those seats, so it's not like we were stealing anyone's seat. But that's how I rationalized it. Anyways, I've just... Don't listen to anything else I say because I'm a sinner. I thought you were pure and couldn't get that word sexual object out because... but. Nope. No way. Well, thanks for joining us. Share this episode. We've got a couple more coming on contemporary critical theory and the different um, levels and elements of it. But we'd love for you to share it. Let us know. Rate us. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for checking out the Salted Podcast. You can find other episodes and topics on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you click follow so you'll get notifications whenever new episodes come out. Thanks for listening.